Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast, Avast's new all-in-one solution. Avast One helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. To learn more about Avast One, go to avast.com. What a difference a weekend makes. You know, at the end of last week, there was a lot of optimism in the markets that the Russian sanctions wouldn't be too bad. A lot of that was based on some of the remarks that Biden gave at his press conference. And so I think investors were breathing collective sighs of relief as they were continuing to buy value stocks, dividend paying stocks, the trends that were in place prior to Russia invading the Ukraine remained in place and the market seemed prepared to just shrug it off. But all of that changed over the weekend as the noose around Russia's neck was tightened with the imposition of far more dramatic sanctions across the board on the Russian economy, on Russian businesses, on the Russian central bank. Russia's central bank, as well as many of the largest banks in Russia, have been cut off completely from the SWIFT system. They can't transact. Trade with Russia is pretty much being prohibited as the world is trying to cut it off completely from commerce. And this is having broad-ranging implications throughout the global economy, but specifically in the stock market. Many stocks have completely collapsed over the last couple of days. Obviously, the greatest carnage is in Russian stocks themselves. In fact, the Russian stock market has been closed, but you have Russian stocks trading all over the world. They have GDRs in London. They have ADRs here, and these stocks are getting obliterated. But it's not just the Russian stocks that are getting hammered. It's the stock of any company that has any relationship at all with Russia, whether that company sources some supplies from Russia, Russia is the source of some natural gas or some oil, or there are other parts that you need to buy from Russia. A lot of companies sell finished goods into the Russian market, so their revenues are going to be under pressure because they've lost some customers, but their revenues are also under pressure if they've lost a key source of supply, whether they bought chemicals needed for fertilizer or they were buying natural gas needed for power. If they can't produce the products, then they can't sell the products. Or if they have to source those materials someplace else at much higher cost, then that's also going to impact their businesses. Now, the trend in commodities has continued. Commodity prices continue to rise even as stock prices continue to get killed Look at the price of oil. Oil is now above $101 a barrel as I'm recording this podcast on Tuesday morning. This is a new high for the cycle in oil. I've been saying that oil was going to break through 100 and now it has, but it's got clear sailing, I think, between 100 and 140 $150 a barrel. And there really is no reason why we shouldn't hit those prices later this year, if not sooner than later this year. Gold prices have continued to inch higher. They're not exploding yet. We're about 1920 announced for gold, you know, only up about 11, 12 dollars so far today. We still haven't taken out that high from the evening of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, but it's only a matter of time before that happens. In fact, 
The failure of gold to move even higher is one of the reasons that a lot of people are still critical of the yellow metal. They're saying, why isn't it already much higher? Why hasn't it already gone through 2000? The fact that it hasn't gone much higher, well, that proves that it's no longer relevant, that it's no longer a safe haven, that it's no longer an inflation hedge. All this is, is a gift horse buying opportunity. This is like a deer in a headlight. The price of gold is going to move, I think, in a major way. The only question is, what's the catalyst that's going to spark the rise? But it is coming, and it is coming soon. And the people who are questioning why gold is not going up should just be buying gold right now with both hands. But what's even more frustrating is to watch oil stocks getting killed as the price of oil is going up, to watch gold stocks getting killed as the price of gold is going up. Now, it's not all stocks. Some of the South African gold mining companies have made new 52-week highs in the last couple of days. But many of the other larger companies that have any kind of relationship in Russia, maybe they partner in a mine in Russia. They're doing something with Russia. They're getting killed. Same thing with oil companies. They're getting killed because they have a relationship with Russia. But it's not just the companies that do business with Russia that have assets in Russia that are under pressure, but it's all the real businesses that generate earnings and pay dividends. I was talking on this podcast about the big transition that was underway out of momentum, out of hyped up overpriced crap into real businesses, dividend paying companies that made money and that this transition was all part of the rising interest rate environment, the increasing inflation environment, because it was artificially low interest rates and low inflation that kept the momentum going in the overhyped stocks and was the reason that money wasn't going into value. In fact, money was being diverted away from value specifically into these stocks because the momentum was so good. Well, once the momentum broke and inflation reared its head, I pointed out how the dynamic had changed because betting on future earnings was no longer as valuable as it was in the past. And what was more valuable was income in the present, dividends in the present, companies with real earnings and pricing power that can act as inflation hedge. And those dynamics were the dynamics that were in place. But right now we're having our first significant correction in that trend. Now, I don't think the trend is over. I do think this is a correction and we're going to go back to that trend when this correction completes. But a lot of those companies that don't have the direct connection to Russia, well, everybody has an indirect connection because if what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine drags on and there's every indication that it will, it is going to weigh on the global economy. And that means it's going to weigh on all the businesses that have earnings. Everybody's earnings are going to come down if we move into a recession. I mean, it's pretty clear to me that the U.S. is headed into a recession. The Atlanta Fed is going to come out later today, probably after I record this podcast, and revise its latest estimates for Q1. And even if they don't go negative today, and they might, I think it's only a matter of time before they do, with surging oil prices, surging food prices, and that's another big thing. Food prices are going up all over the world. They're about to kick into a whole new gear. So the headline inflation numbers are going to really spike 
but they're going to spike in a way that the central bank, particularly the Fed, is going to perceive it as a tax hike. The fact that so many Americans are going to have to pay so much more for the basic necessities of life, that's going to cause the Fed to rethink its strategy. In fact, the market has already priced out at least two of the rate hikes that it had priced in prior to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And that's part of the dynamic that has changed here because what was helping to fuel the rotation out of momentum into value was the specter of more rate hikes. Well, now that landscape has changed. As the market is backing rate hikes out of their expectations, and I believe more hikes are gonna get backed out as the situation continues to get worse for the global economy, that is also what is behind this correction in that trend where people are selling these real businesses that have real earnings that are impacted by Russian connections and a weak in the economy, and they're moving money back into the broken down momentum stocks. Look at what's happened over the last couple of days to the ARK Innovation Fund. It's up about 23% in a couple of days. I mean, a bull market, right? 20%. People are buying these stocks as they're selling value stocks. Why? Well, because these companies don't have any assets in Russia. They don't really do business in Russia. They don't have any earnings. So you don't have to worry about the earnings going down. People are just buying these stocks because they're down and they think, well, maybe they'll go up because the Fed might not hike. Or if they do hike, they're not going to hike as many times as they did before. The same thing is happening to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is now up better than 30% in the last couple of days. As I'm recording this podcast, Bitcoin is over 44,000, 44,600. It's just been going straight up these last couple of days, just as the beaten down tech stocks in the ARK Innovation ETF have been going up. Now, gold is also going up. And now you've got a lot of these Bitcoin guys saying, aha, we told you so. Peter Schiff was wrong. Look, gold and Bitcoin are both going up. They're both acting as safe havens. They're both acting as inflation hedges. Only Bitcoin is better because look how much more Bitcoin is up than gold. Well, first of all, gold is near 52-week high at 1920 Bitcoin is still miles away from its 52-week high of 69,000. But you have to understand that Bitcoin is not rising for the same reasons that gold is rising. Gold is rising as an inflation hedge. Gold is rising as a safe haven. It's just not rising that dramatically. But again, in relation to other assets, it's rising substantially. I mean, think about somebody who's lived in Russia, right? If you had a bunch of money in gold versus Russian stocks, look at how much wealth you've preserved by being in gold. And in fact, that's true throughout the world right now. Pretty much all stock prices are falling in terms of gold, with the exception of these tech stocks that have risen over the past several trading days. But if you go back over the last several months, gold has held up much better than these stocks. So gold is acting as a store of value. It is hedging against risks and inflation. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is rising right now for the same reason that these overpriced yet beaten down non-income generating tech stocks are going up. It's part of the correction as people are selling these dividend paying value stocks that had been performing so well leading up to the events in Russia. 
those stocks are now coming down and some of that money is now flowing back into these beaten down stocks, especially since so many people are making the argument that those stocks are on sale. They've already gone down so much, whereas a lot of the value stocks were hitting 52-week highs. These momentum stocks were 50, 60, 70, 80% below their 52-week highs Money is flowing in there. But I don't think this trade is going to have legs. I don't think it's going to work out the way a lot of investors think because they're looking back in the rearview mirror at the way these things have played out. Because right now, what's going on in Russia, this is basically the latest variant that the Fed is going to use as an excuse to ease policy. First, we had COVID, and then we had the Delta variant, and then we had Omicron, and the world is really getting tired of COVID. I mean, it's COVIDed out, but the Fed needs another excuse. And so if it's not going to be COVID, what's it going to be? And Russia is the gift from heaven. I mean, this is exactly what the Fed needed because it needed some way to save face, some way to dial back the expectations of all these rate hikes. And in fact, some excuse not to hike rates at all. Now, I'm not really sure about that. I may be 50-50 because the markets still believe the Fed is going to hike rates, just not as many times as they believed a couple of weeks ago. But as the situation continues to get worse, and it probably will get worse, more of those expected hikes are going to be priced out of the market. And we'll see what happens because if it's clear that the U.S. economy is headed to or is already in recession by mid-March, will the Fed actually pull the trigger on rates? Will the Fed deliberately make a recession worse with rate hikes? Because if Americans are already struggling with surging energy prices and surging food prices, does the Fed really want to increase the burden with rising interest rates? Because the minute the Fed hikes rates, it's going to have an immediate effect on interest rates throughout the economy, and that is going to affect the consumer. So that is the reason that the Fed may not hike at all, or if it does hike, it may indicate to the market that it's one and done for a while, that it's data dependent, that it wants to see how the markets absorb that hike before it delivers another one. And I think it's the anticipation of this easing of monetary policy that is blowing some air back into these deflating tech bubbles or crypto bubble. But unlike what happened in the past, whether it was COVID or whether it was the financial crisis, I don't think an easing of monetary policy is going to work this time. I mean, it may create a small rally, but it's not sending the markets to new highs like we had under COVID because this time it really is different because we have a huge inflation problem that the markets can't ignore. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Now, the Fed is going to blame a lot of the new inflation on Russia. It doesn't have to blame it on COVID anymore. It can blame it on Russia. 
And it's going to be an excuse to allow rising inflation. Just like they claimed it was transitory because of the supply chain bottlenecks, well, now they can pull that transitory card out again, only this time it's because of Russia. The supply chain problems are now because of Russia and the Ukraine. It's got nothing to do with the Fed. It's got nothing to do with monetary policy. In fact, the Fed needs a more expansionary monetary policy to counteract the damage being done to the economy from what's going on with these global supply chains. Like we need more money, which is exactly what they did, you know, when the oil price went up in the 1970s, that resulted in the Fed printing more money, creating more inflation because the Fed wanted to offset the contractionary effects of rising oil prices on the economy. And the Fed wanted to make sure that consumers had more money to buy more expensive oil. And of course, that's what was fueling the process. And the same thing is going to happen again, which is why I do believe that the only viable path for the U.S. government to take and maybe even before the next election, is going to be price controls. It is going to be rationing. I mean, we did that in World War II. You know, we had rationing. Things were in short supply. You know, we had price controls in the 1970s. That may be where we're headed because I don't see the Fed doing what Paul Volcker did in the 1980s, not in the vulnerable position that the U.S. economy is now in. And that is why it's different this time. Because when inflation was low, when the Fed could point to a CPI that was below 2%, well, at that time, the Fed could justify the cheap money. The Fed could actually say, look, the economy is weak, but also inflation is too low. And they came up with this cockamamie explanation of why too low inflation is bad. So we can kill two birds with one stone with this monetary policy. We can stimulate a weak economy, but we can also get more inflation, which is what we need anyway. We were not hitting our target. We didn't have 2% inflation, which supposedly is the holy grail when it comes to inflation. And we weren't quite there yet. And so we're going to pursue these policies. But when you've got inflation well above 7%. And with what we're seeing now, there's no way inflation is going to be under 10%, even the way the government measures it in 2022. So when you've got 10% inflation officially, unofficially, maybe double that, maybe 20%, if that's how much prices are going up, there is no way the Fed could claim that we need more inflation. And it cannot justify its excessively loose monetary policy on low inflation. But for now, what's going on in Russia is actually working to help somewhat and offset the situation because it is driving some safe haven flows into the U.S. dollar. And so that is keeping a lid somewhat on prices that are surging all around the world. But that benefit is not being enjoyed in Europe. I mean, prices are rising in the U.S. despite a strong dollar. That means they're rising even more in Europe as the euro is weakening against the dollar and other countries that are seeing their currency weakening. Inflation is breaking out all over the world. So it's impossible for central banks around the world to justify a continuation of this monetary madness. They can't keep shooting monetary heroin into economies that are already overdosing from all the monetary heroin that they've already ingested. So we are at the end of our rope. Yes, maybe we can have a small bounce as investors still haven't come to terms 
with the degree to which the situation has changed, given how much inflation we have, given the enormity of the Fed's balance sheet, given that interest rates are already at zero. If we are going into a recession right now, even if the catalyst for the recession is what's happening in Russia, what is the Fed going to do about it? They have no room to cut rates, even if they get the first rate hike in, in March. But then they have to turn around a couple months later and go back to zero because we're now clearly in a recession as opposed to just headed for one. How much stimulus is the Fed going to deliver when all you can cut rates is 25 basis points? Is it really going to make a difference to a weak economy if you take rates from 25 basis points to zero, especially if inflation continues to get worse? But the minute the Fed does that, the dollar's going to tank. I mean, if the Fed has to go back to zero, I don't see how the dollar could survive that if the dollar hadn't already started to get killed based on the fact that the market sensed this was happening. What's going on with the safe haven flows to the dollar, that's going to blow over, just like any money that is flowing into these tech stocks and Bitcoin, because in this dynamic, these companies are not going to survive. I mean, right now, people are thinking, hey, the companies that don't have any earnings and don't pay any dividends, they're not affected as much by what's going on in Russia, right? We don't have to worry about the impact on their profits because they don't have any profits. They don't have assets in Russia that they're going to have to write down. Sovereign wealth funds aren't being pressured into dumping their shares at fire sale prices because of their connections to Russia. So people are piling into these stocks. But what investors are missing is the lack of viability of these companies because they're not going to be able to come back to the capital markets to offset their burn. Companies in this space that are losing money are going to lose even more money because of what's happening in the global economy and Russia than they were losing before. And their revenue growth is not going to be there. So the dynamics are no longer there. And how are these companies going to survive if they can't sell new stock at inflated prices? How are they going to keep paying their employees when their employees don't want to work for stock options because the stocks are tanking? The dynamics are going to change and the fortunes of these companies are going to change and especially the people who are betting on them. This is a dead cat bounce in that sector. It is a dead cat bounce in Bitcoin and anybody who missed the initial decline in the Kathy Wood type stocks or the crypto, this is your opportunity to get out of jail. Yeah, you're not going to sell at the top. We're nowhere near the top, but we're far enough off the bottom that you can sell and take comfort in the fact that you didn't sell the low. Although even the people who sold the low prior to this rally in a month, maybe less, will be glad they got out because we'll be hitting new lows. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years, and it's trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Like award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Also, data breach monitoring. This enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed. You also get firewall protection to keep your personal information secure and prevent attacks that seek to access your computer or steal your data. It even speeds up your PC by optimizing the background activity of your apps. 
I've been securing my own data for years by using Avast. In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. To learn more about Avast One, go to avast.com. But I want to go over some of the economic data that just came out in the last couple of days that continues to validate the stagflationary argument that I am making. And again, which is why this time will be different. When you have a weak economy and inflation, that's much different than having a weak economy and no inflation because the Fed has lots of options when there's no inflation. It has no options when there's high inflation. And when the world comes to terms with that predicament, the way they allocate capital, the way they invest money will be very different than the way they did it in prior cycles. The money is going to plow into the mining sector, agriculture, metals. It's going to go into value. It's going to go into dividends. Those trends that were in place prior to Russia are going to be back in place after Russia. But again, Russia is going to be here for a long time. The Biden administration needs Russia. This is the excuse they need. They need to take these problems into the election. They need to have a scapegoat. COVID wasn't going to be it. If you look at the approval ratings for the Biden administration, they were in the tank. They needed some kind of tail to wag the dog, and this might be it, right? This could be the new gift that keeps on giving, not only for the central bankers, but for the Biden administration to blame any problems in the U.S. economy on what's happening in Russia and to take that into the midterm elections. And so given the stakes that are here and given the degree to which the Biden administration may now depend on the Russia crush, it's not going away. And I also don't think Putin is ready to cave. I think he's got a bigger long-term game plan. And I do think at the end of the day, the result of this may not be the toppling of Russia and its attempts to reform the Soviet Union, but it may end up being the toppling of America. I mean, the Soviet Union was this one great superpower, and then there was the United States. Well, the Soviet Union collapsed, but the United States remained as the sole remaining superpower. But our economy, our industrial base continued to disintegrate, and we may now be on the cusp of the collapse of our empire. And it might be ironic that the nation that ends up pushing us over that precipice is what remains of our former adversary in the Soviet Union, Russia. Take a look at the Chicago Purchasing Managers Index. This came out on Monday. The prior number was 65.2, and the expectation was that it would decline to 63. Instead, it collapsed to 56.3. That's the lowest since the early days of COVID in 2020, clearly indicating an economy on the cusp of recession. But I think the more disturbing of the economic numbers that nobody seems to care about that came out yesterday was the merchandise trade deficit. And I have been talking about these trade deficits on my podcast. Everybody else ignores them. And to the extent the mainstream media even discusses the trade deficits. It's about how it's evidence of the strong U.S. economy and our insatiable appetite for imports. We don't have an insatiable appetite for imports. Americans have an insatiable appetite for stuff. 
we want to buy stuff. And it's not really insatiable. It's being fueled by the Fed's monetary policy. So because of all this inflationary monetary policy, Americans have lots of money to spend. But also because of this policy and other U.S. government policies, we're not making stuff for people to buy. We're printing a lot of money for Americans to spend, but we're not making a lot of stuff for those same Americans to buy. So that's why we have these huge trade deficits. It's not that we want to buy foreign stuff. We want to buy stuff. And the only place that stuff is being made is foreign because our economy is so weak. So the number for January, which was supposed to come out at $98.5 billion, which would have been an improvement, right? A lower number than the prior month's $101 billion. Well, instead of improving, it got much worse. The trade deficit in goods, and this is the advanced estimate, surged to $107.6 billion in January. That blew through the upper end of expectations, which was 103.2. The low end was 96. This is a huge number, and it's going to get worse. You know, with the price of oil north of $100 a barrel and rising, we are importing a lot of that oil, and so these trade numbers are going to get worse. But look at the breakdown. How we got to that $107.6 billion number, that's also bad because imports rose by 1.7%, while exports fell by 1.8%. So it's not just that we're importing more. We are exporting less. This is how screwed up the U.S. economy is. You know, one of the best things about the Trump campaign, not the Trump presidency, but the Trump campaign, is he was the first presidential candidate in memory to make the trade deficit a campaign theme. The entire slogan of Make America Great Again was really based on trade. It was based on Donald Trump's accurate observation that America's huge trade deficits evidenced a severe problem. It was the de-industrialization of America. The American economy was being turned into an economic wasteland because of bad policies. Now, he said it was bad trade policies. It wasn't bad trade policies. It was just bad economic policy. It was bad monetary policy. That's what was destroying our economic base, the foundation upon which our prosperity used to rest. Donald Trump was right about that. And he promised to make America great by rebuilding what had been destroyed, by reindustrializing America. We were going to start making stuff in America again, producing stuff here again, not relying on imports. We were going to hire people in America to help produce things, not pay people in other countries to produce those things. We were going to hire our own. We were going to build here and build back America and make it great. That's what Donald Trump promised to do. Now, of course, he didn't deliver on those promises. The trade deficits got worse during his presidency, but early in his presidency, he kept claiming, and I kept pointing out that it was false, 
that everybody was moving back to America, that all the factories were coming back, that all the jobs were coming back. Because of what he had done domestically, he had reversed all these horrible trade deals. We had had this tax cuts or tax reforms. And because of this great economy that Trump had created, he had solved that problem and we were reindustrializing and it was going to be a boom in exports, a boom in manufacturing. And there were a lot of pundits who bought into that BS early on, especially a lot of Republicans. And I had to beat them down. I had to introduce a dose of reality into that conversation by reminding people that it was all talk that these trade wars were going to be lost, that America's trade deficits were going to get bigger, not smaller, and that everything Trump was saying was a pipe dream. But what wasn't a dream, what was unfortunately a real-life nightmare, was his criticism of the U.S. economy and what these trade deficits represent. And these trade deficits are bigger than ever, and they're going to continue to get bigger. Any ordinary country would have already seen a currency collapse as a result of trade deficits like this. Instead, the dollar is rising despite these trade deficits because of its role as a reserve currency, because of the perception that it's a port in this storm, a safe haven. And so people are buying into the dollar. But the more they buy into the dollar, the bigger these trade deficits get, because that just gives Americans even more purchasing power to buy more stuff we didn't produce. And so the trade deficits will get bigger and bigger and bigger as America becomes increasingly more reliant on the rest of the world. And the American industrial base, already withered away substantially, is going to continue to deteriorate beneath our feet. And I think the pace of this deterioration is going to accelerate and this is what's going to help bring about a turn in the dollar's fortune as the toll that is exacted, not just on the global economy, but the U.S. economy, forces the Federal Reserve to do an about-face on monetary policy, even as inflation continues to get worse. And then the budget deficits skyrocket again on top of these soaring trade deficits. And in that environment, we end up getting a sovereign debt and currency crisis here in the U.S. Now, the economic data that came out this morning wasn't quite as bad. We got the ISM Manufacturing Index that was supposed to come out at 58, and it came out at 58.6, so a little bit better than the 57.6 the prior month. The same story for the PMI manufacturing number. That was supposed to come out at 57.5, didn't quite make it at 57.3, but close enough to expectations for government work. But the construction spending number, that actually came out quite a bit stronger than had been thought. In fact, they revised the December number higher from up 0.2 to up 0.8. And instead of coming in at minus 0.2 in January, we actually got plus 1.3%. But year-over-year number is lower than the prior month, which was 9% up. It's now 8.2%. But remember, all of this data was before the recent Russian invasion of the Ukraine and, of course, the world's response to that invasion that was really rolled out in its entirety over the weekend. And so I expect a lot of this economic data to turn. And again, most of it was already weakening even before the Russia situation. It's going to be even weaker now. And of course, some of the data points that were improving, well, those improvements are going to be reversed 
based on the current situation. Now, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of the value-oriented dividend-paying stocks around the world are being pounded as a result of their exposure to the Russian market. And what I forgot to point out earlier, it's not just companies that are doing business there, they're sourcing supplies, they're selling there, but there are a lot of businesses that are holding Russian debt Russian companies, the Russian government has borrowed a lot of money, and these sanctions are really making it impossible for these debts to be repaid. Certainly, they can't be serviced, and that has a lot of repercussions for the credit markets, for a financial crisis. Russia is a big chunk of the overall global economy, and while in isolation, it's not that big a chunk, remember how these dominoes fall. I mean, how big of the financial pie, how big was the slice of the subprime market? But of course, it ended up affecting a lot of other markets because how everything is so interconnected. This could be every much the systemic risk that that might have been. And so you have to look at all the dominoes that are going to fall as a result of defaults on Russian-related debt. And what about companies now that relied on Russia, revenues from Russia, supplies, maybe they default on their debt too. So who knows how many shoes are going to drop here. And so the markets are getting hit, companies are getting hit. But at the same time, there are those companies that are benefiting. We own several companies that are making 52-week highs today that are up big because they win from what's happening in Russia, because maybe they pick up business that Russian companies lost. So their sales are going to pick up. And of course, the prices that they're going to get for the stuff they do sell in a market of lower competition, well, that could improve as well. So it's not a situation where all these stocks are getting hit. It's a mixed bag, which is a reason to diversify. And by the way, if you look at how our portfolios are holding up at Europe Pacific Capital, both in separately managed accounts and in our funds, we are going down in the last few days a lot less than the foreign markets in general, because while we do have exposure to the Russian economy, we have less exposure, significantly less than would be representative in the benchmarks that we follow. And so most of the funds that compete with us are more exposed to Russia and they're getting hurt. And what they don't have is the exposure to the precious metals sector. And even though some of those stocks have been hit, overall, they've held up pretty good. And so far today, this morning, we're seeing very nice strength in the gold mining stocks, and hopefully that will continue. But also, some of these stocks that are getting hit right now, the market is overreacting to this problem. Sure, there are going to be some short-term losses to revenue or profits, but it's short-term. I said earlier in the podcast, this Russian situation is going to be here for a while, and it will. It's going to persist. I think it could be here through the year, but it's not going to be here indefinitely. So these companies that are seeing a temporary reduction in their earnings are not going to see a permanent reduction. Some of the assets that are being written down now will be written back up when the crisis subsides. Meanwhile, a lot of these companies whose stocks are going down now, their long-term business prospects are actually improving, even if their short-term prospects are taking a hit based on what will be temporary. Temporary. This is a transitory problem. It may take a while to transition, but it will transition. These hostilities will come to an end. And as I said earlier, 
the big casualty might be the United States. The United States has a lot more to lose than Russia because Russia is just another country. The Soviet Union has already collapsed. The U.S. has not. We still are a superpower and we enjoy that status based on the privilege that we have as the dollar being the reserve currency. Well, this conflict may end with the loss of that privilege. And even though the dollar is rallying now, I believe this rally is going to be short-lived, which is going to continue to add fuel to the strategy of investing outside the United States. And in fact, right now, that momentum has shifted a bit back to the U.S. Money was flowing out of U.S. stocks into foreign stocks prior to this Russia-Ukraine situation. Clearly, companies in Europe are more directly exposed to Russia than the companies in the United States. And that's also true because you have more real businesses there with real assets and real earnings that are exposed. You don't have as many money-losing companies trading on the European bourses. You don't have the dominance of these mega-tech companies that have sky-high valuations or companies that have no earnings, so there's no way to value them. They just value based on a hope and a prayer. These are the companies that are in the U.S. market, and so they're not getting impacted immediately by the Russia situation, and some of the money is now flowing into those stocks, but it's going to flow out quickly because this is not the same situation that we had During COVID or during the 2008 financial crisis, we have a huge inflation problem. This fire is already burning and it's going to burn even hotter as a result of what's going on. And the Fed and other central banks may be printing even more money. So the game here is over. The clock is ticking. A lot of people don't hear the ticking, don't even understand what's going on. They're in for a rude awakening. So while they're still asleep, We need to take advantage of their ignorance, take advantage of the short-term buying opportunities that are being created as investors overreact to a political situation, sell stocks not for investment reasons, but because they have no choice. They're being forced to divest of Russian assets and of companies that have some association with Russia. So the smart money is going to take advantage of this, buying when there's blood in the streets. And for some companies, there is blood in the streets and there may be more blood in the streets. So as the streets get bloodier and bloodier, the opportunities get bigger and bigger. And we are on the pulse of those opportunities. We still have some dry powder waiting to deploy if we get some real great bargains. But in the meantime, Our strategies are continuing to play out, but there's still opportunity for people to divest of overpriced U.S. stocks. Again, we've had a little bit of a reprieve with this dead cat bounce, which I don't believe will last long. In fact, maybe today will be the final day and we'll start to fall over. Who knows? Those stocks are on borrowed time, as are the cryptocurrencies that have already bounced. It's time to get out of fool's gold and get into real gold. And it's time to get out of these fool's companies with no earnings and no dividends and get into real stocks. And if you missed that opportunity late last year, early this year, well, you've got a second opportunity. So don't look this gift horse in the mouth. Anyway, later today, the president is going to be delivering his State of the Union address. And of course, Biden is not going to paint an accurate picture of the United States. The State of the Union is completely unsound. In fact, it's probably never been less sound than it is right now. And I know I've criticized prior presidents 
for missing the deterioration in the American economy as they pontificate from their podiums about how great everything is, particularly Donald Trump, who continuously claimed credit for the greatest economy in the history of America. And I was very critical of those remarks when Trump gave them. And I'll be equally critical of the remarks that Biden is going to give even before I hear them. Now, I know he's been advised to try to level with the public to an extent by acknowledging and feeling their pain kind of like Bill Clinton, so not talking about how great everything is when it's so obviously not great, but the picture he is going to paint is not the reality that everybody is living in. He is going to sugarcoat it completely. He will acknowledge just a small tip of these problems while still claiming credit for having accomplished so much when he hasn't accomplished anything. All he's done is make the situation worse, and I'll have a lot more to say on the Miss State of the Union address after the remarks are delivered during my next podcast. So make sure and tune in. 